Well, for the past several weeks, we've been studying in a series called Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, hopefully for those of you who've been here, you can remember. So we're going to do a quick review. How many can remember some of the pictures that we've drawn from from the Old Testament? Uh, who can remember one? Remind me. Jesus was what? Passover. The Passover lamb. We did talk about that, and we compared it to how that the lamb was slain and the, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost of people's house to save them, right? Yes, Tori? Uh, Jesus, Jesus is the rock, and out of that rock flow rivers of living water. In the Old Testament, we saw the rock that followed the children of Israel, right? The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is our rock. Is there one more? Huh? Snake on a pole. Good memory, yeah. Last week we talked about a snake on a pole. You think, you're think you thinking, man, what is this church? Talks about snakes all the time. No, no, no. This is an Old Testament story where there, there were snakes because of the rebellion of the people that went around and bit everybody, and then God instructed Moses to make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, put it in the middle of the, of the camp, and everybody who would look at that snake, bronze snake, with faith would be healed and would live. And we know that Jesus came to do the same thing. Amen? It, tip, it typified what Jesus Christ, who was also lifted up according to John chapter 4 and John chapter 3, he was also lifted up, and of course, uh, looking at him with faith causes us to have eternal life. Amen? So we find ourselves in week number four of the series, and uh, after today we'll have two more weeks where we will have an emphasis on Jesus in the Old Testament. So hopefully you're learning something already, right? Hopefully you are. So uh, today we're going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant. This is a fascinating study of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And I've entitled today's message, The Ark of the Covenant, Unlocking the Mystery. Unlocking the Mystery. You know, there's probably no other... Um, ancient relic of Jewish history that has caught more attention than the Ark of the Covenant. It's one of the most sought-after relics, actually, because it is still lost. No one knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. And, of course, we know that uh, the Ark of the Covenant was probably made more fam famous to secular audiences, at least, when Harrison Ford starred in the movie Raiders of a Lost Ark. I know some of you are not old enough to know about that, but there was a movie once upon a time. Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, of course, all that was just fictional. But what it did show us is that, that uh, there's something that's captivating to people about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I have to tell you that most of the theories, and there's rampant theories today about the Ark and and, and certain things that it does and where it is. And from time to time, someone will claim that they found it. Uh, but most of those things may be entertaining, but they're not true. All right? So uh, men are still searching for the Ark of the Covenant today, but many, most for the wrong reason. So what we're here today, today to do today is to talk about what is the Ark of the Covenant what was it from a biblical standpoint? What did God have in mind? What was it all about? And what in the world does it have to do with Jesus? How in the world can we see Jesus in the Ark of the Covenant? All right, so 
we're going to turn to a scripture. You can look at it with me, found in Hebrews chapter 9. By the way, just for clarification, this is not Noah's Ark. This is the Ark of the Covenant, all right? Uh, spelled the same way, but two different things. One was a boat, one was a box. So we're talking about the box today, all right? Hebrews chapter 9, I'll read it to you from beginning in verse 3. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. We call that the table of showbread. This was called the holy place. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. Or another word there would be overshadowing the mercy seat. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. All right, so here we're discovering that there is such a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And just to give you some images, which uh, I have included some images on the slides today, so you can try to visualize what we're talking about. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness, God instructed them to build a tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a traveling tent because the people were nomadic. So they would move from place to place. And this is a picture of the camp of Israel, an image uh, where you see people's residences, their tents, where their families lived. And then you have this large tent that was the tabernacle. This is Moses' tabernacle. Quick sidebar, uh, there were actually two different tabernacles in the Old Testament. There is the tabernacle of Moses, and then there's the tabernacle of David. All right? So we're not dealing with the tabernacle of David. That's for another day, all right? So this is the tabernacle of Moses because it was Moses that built it, constructed it, and God spoke to Moses about what to do and how to do it. And so you will see that this is the outer court, and then you see that there's a, a tent covered. There's two actual divisions inside that. There is the holy place, and that holy place, we'll see another picture in a moment, but you had those three items that he listed there in Hebrews chapter 9. You had the table of showbread, you had the altar of incense, you had the brazen, the brazen altar, you had the golden lampstand, those three items. Then there's another curtain that separated it from the holy of holies. And it was in the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant resided. You will notice that they, this particular illustrator decided to show the glory of God right there in that cloud. You see kind of that, that uh, image showing that that's where God was dwelling. So there's a number of things that we need to learn about the Ark of the Covenant before we can begin to see its New Testament fulfillment. All right? So let's go through those now. I'm going to give you five facts about the Ark. You ready? Five facts 
about the ark. Each of these are substantiated in Scripture, and we'll just go through them one by one. Number one, God instructed Moses to build it according to precise detail. This is quite amazing. When you look at the detail that God gave Moses in building this ark. Let me read to you from Exodus 25 and verse 10. Have the people make an ark of acacia wood or shittim wood, a sacred chest that would be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. You see the mold, you see the gold molding there? Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings, never remove them. So here I've included an image, a pretty accurate image of what the Ark of the Covenant must have looked like. And you can see that essentially the Ark was a rectangular box. Okay? It was a box made of wood, simple, but then gold was overlaid both on the outside of the box, also in the interior of the box. And it had a lid. And the lid that was on the box was pure gold. All right? And we call that the mercy seat. Or I think the New Living Translation that I read to you from this morning in Hebrews 9 called it what? The atonement cover. All right? So the... the the, the thing that's fascinating to me is the level of detail. The level of detail and precision that God gave to Moses on what to build. Why do you think that is? Think God was just testing the people? I believe <clears throat> much of the detail that we find in these types of things, like this instruction, are there for a reason. They're there in order to give us some insight about what is going to be revealed to us in the New Testament. So I think that the, the, there's great specificity here and precision, but in, in simple terms, I think the detail on how it was to be constructed was there for the purpose, not just a practical purpose for the children of Israel, but it was for foreshadowing of what is to come. I think there was also some practical, obviously. Uh, God wanted this uh, to, rep as we'll see, it represents his power, his presence on earth, and he wanted it to have an ability, them to have an ability to carry it. And so that's the reason for the poles and the rings on the side, uh, was it simply gave them a way to transport the ark. All right, so in fact, number one, God instructed Moses to build it according to precise detail. Fact number two, the Ark of the Covenant was God's visible presence and power on earth at that time. The scripture tells us in Exodus 25, there, the Lord says, there above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant of the law, I will meet with you 
and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Where did God say he was going to meet with them? Right there at the Ark of the Covenant. Now you can see that particular illustration has literal fire coming up from it in order to signify that this was God's power and presence. I want to go back and show you this one illustration for a moment. I want you to look at the Ark for a moment and notice that on the gold lid there are constructed two angelic creatures. Do you see those? Two angelic creatures. These were called cherubim. And notice that they're constructed with their they're kind of their heads are kind of bowed and their wings are kind of doing like this. You see that? And notice that they don't touch. The wings were not to touch. And right there in between the where the gap was between the wings was said to be the glory. In Hebrew, the chavad, the glory. Uh, maybe a better translation would be the a, a translation of that word chavat is really the 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 whoa, wow, the heavy, the heavy of God, signifying the the weight of His presence, His glory, was right there. So God promised. You build this, I'm going to dwell right there. This was God's dwelling, His presence, visible sometimes, manifested to all. Whenever He wanted to speak, He would meet them right there. Isn't it interesting? So this is God's presence and power on earth. It was regarded as... um, God's presence and God's power uh, as a manifestation of God. Now we know that God by nature is omnipresent, right? Which means what? He's everywhere, right? He is present everywhere. Whether you go to Kabul or whether you go to uh, whether you go to New York City or San Francisco or Tokyo, God's there. Right? Why? He's omnipresent. You can't escape the presence of God. But this kind of presence is different. This is the manifest presence of God. You say, well, what's the difference? When the manifest presence of God, it is a concentration of God's presence that is generally either seen or felt. That's the weight of His glory. Many of you have maybe been in a church service or a gathering before where uh, we know that every time we come together, God's present, right? When Will and I get together and have a cup of coffee, God's present. Why? Because the Bible says where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am. He's there. But there's a difference when the manifest presence shows up. The manifest presence of God happens many times as a result of our worship or our prayer uh, what's going? Something that's going on, and when God's manifest presence comes, it is sensory. You can sense it, feel it, sometimes even see it. In the Old Testament, you could see it like a cloud. You could see it in great power. Uh, back in the day, people used to say, "Oh, I, I knew God was with us today in the service. I had, I had goosebumps." They used to call them Holy Ghost bumps, but uh, but they would, thought that that meant what 
you know, God really showed up. Well, I'm sure he did, but uh, I've got news for you. You don't have to have goosebumps in order to know that God is, is manifesting his presence. There's many different ways that you can sense it and know it. But in the Old Testament, this was God's visible presence and power on earth. All right, everybody got it? Wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, boom. Let's look at number three, third fact. The Ark of the Covenant had a place, a place of residence where it was supposed to reside and remain. Where was it? It was always in the house of God. The reason I said the house of God is because it, it was moved. Originally, the tabernacle was a house of God. It was a place where God dwelt. It was a place where the priests came and made their sacrifices, and even the congregation would gather around at the tent. But later we know that David moved it to his tabernacle, his tent, and then later when the Solomon's temple was constructed, we know that the Ark of the Covenant was actually moved into the temple itself. And so you understand that there were different residences for it. But any time there was a God-directed place where the presence, the Ark of the Covenant was to be, it was where? It was in the house of God. Here's an illustration that kind of shows you the inside of the holy place and then the holy of holies. So you can see inside the tabernacle, this was the, uh, the holy place where the priests would take care of, uh, they would make sure that the oil was replenished in the golden lampstand, and, and we have the table of showbread and the brazen altar. All right, those things were things that priests were involved with on a regular basis. But in the inner court was the Holy of Holies, or sometimes we call it the most holy place. That was the inner sanctum, and the only thing that was in that room was what? The Ark of the Covenant. By the way, that is the place where only certain people could go. Pastor Todd next Sunday is going to talk about Jesus as the high priest. And he'll refer to some of the functions that the high priest had even using this tabernacle. But we know that once a year, coming up, we're right, we're right close to Yom Kippur. So on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, would go on the inside of this curtain, having purified himself, cleansed himself, he would go on the inside of the Holy of Holies, and right there on the mercy seat, what would he put? A blood sacrifice. So what I'm trying to illustrate to you is that uh, this was a place where the ark was placed and remained in the house of God. All right, number four, fourth fact. Are you all okay? I'm giving you just a lot of... I'm just giving you information, all right? So hopefully you're getting it. All right. Number four, fourth fact. The ark went before the children of Israel to provide per divine protection and power. Whenever the children of Israel, we know that they were always moving around, right? They moved from this place to this place to this place to this place. They're always moving around. Guess what? They were to take the ark with them. They rolled up the tabernacle. They put the ark on the... On the, on the shoulders of priests with those gold poles, and they carried that ark from place to place. Wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, there was associated a sense of God's protection. 
divine protection and power that followed it. So that's why wherever they went, there was a particular place. It was usually out in front. The Ark of the Covenant would go and the priests would be around it. It was signifying what? God is with us. He's with us. He's protecting us. His favor is upon us. His power is with us. Even you probably remember uh, that uh, it was such a thing of power uh, when the enemy stole it. During the days of David, the enemy stole it, and they didn't have such good luck with it, did they? We won't go into any details there, but it wasn't so good. It wasn't a pretty picture when the enemy stole the ark of God because it deserves reverential fear. It's not supposed to be some magic wand. You know, it deserved the, the fear of God and their honor and their respect. And so, uh, and of course, we know that they brought it back. And actually, if you remember the story without going to the text, uh, there was a period of time that they left it at someone's house. They put it at the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. Can you, can you picture this? So they just recovered this ark from being stolen by the enemy for a while. And now they said, well, we're not quite ready to do anything with it, so uh, Obed-Edom, we're going to leave it at your house. Okay. Can you imagine the ark of the covenant that's always been in the Holy of Holies? Now they're leaving it in your living room? <laughs> they left it there, if I remember right, was it three months? I can't remember. I think it was three months, six months or three months. But the Bible says that all the time that the Ark of the Covenant was at the house of Obed-Edom, everything in the house of Obed-Edom was blessed. Why? Because it had power connected to it. It was God's favor. It was his presence. So even, do you remember, and, and here's the scripture in Joshua chapter 3, when the children of Israel, Moses had died, and now Joshua is going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, what did God tell them to do? Because they were facing the Jordan River, and the Jordan River was at flood stage. There's no way that they could move 2 million people over the Jordan River. How were they going to do it? Do you know what God told them to do? Have the priest... Put the ark on their shoulders and have the priest go in first with the ark. Have them stand in the middle of the river. As they stand in the middle of the Jordan River, what happened? The water backed up, walled up on both sides, dry ground. Two million Israelites crossed over the Jordan River. I've always wondered, Steve, how those priests endured long enough holding that ark for two million people to get across with dogs and cats and goats. and all that. Oh, I never, I haven't figured that one out. I'm going to ask the Lord that one day. <laughs> but they did it. They stood right there in the middle till everybody had crossed over to the other side of the Jordan River into the, into at Gilgal on the, on the promised land side. My point is what? What did the Ark of the Covenant bring? supernatural, miraculous power, even such that protection was there. When they would go to war and the Ark of the Covenant was there, they didn't even understand why the Ark of the Covenant, the enemy didn't say, well, what's the Ark doing there? And then they got defeated and they began to connect the dots. That's why they tried to steal it. 
thinking that it would do some magical thing for them. All right. So it went before the children of Israel to provide divine protection and power. Number five. Everything about the Ark of the Covenant points us to Jesus Christ. Now, this is where it gets really amazing. All right? Everything about the Ark of the Covenant was there in order to teach us and instruct us and point us to the coming Messiah, the one who is going to come and die for our sins. You say, well, how does it do that? I'm glad you asked. I've got answers. All right? Here are the four lessons that we can learn from the Ark of the Covenant as it resembles Jesus Christ. Are you ready for these? Number one, do you remember what I said that the ark was built out of? The box itself was built first out of what? Wood. Wood. This speaks to the humanity of Jesus. Wood is natural. It speaks of humanity, human nature. We know that Jesus was not only God, he was also man, right? He was 100% man. We know that this is what we talk about in the Christmas story, how the, the, the two unions, that, uh, two natures that came together in Christ, the God-man. The Scripture tells us in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Meaning what? Human. Born of a woman, born under the law. Then later we see uh, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, maybe the most clear scripture demonstrating his humanity, which speaks of God being the word. And it says what? But when the, I'm sorry, but the word, it says in verse 14, the word became flesh. In other words, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full in grace and truth. Who's it speaking about? Jesus Christ. What is it telling us? That he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2 says he put on human flesh. Jesus Christ was first human. And that's what the wood on the Ark of the Covenant represents. Number two, the gold on the Ark of the Covenant, represented his divinity, his deity, the fact that he was not only man, but he was also God. Gold always represents divinity. What an amazing thing it was. Not only did the box, the wooden box, get overlaid with gold, but we know that also, uh, <clears throat> we know that the mercy seat was also uh, made of gold, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So we know that Jesus Christ was God in human form. He was 100% wood, if you will, 100% gold. And that is a foreshadowing. We're seeing Jesus, if you will, when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, we're seeing Jesus Christ. Number three, the mercy seat. Remember what the translation I read in Hebrews 9 called it the atonement cover? Or in other words, the golden lid that sat on top of the rectangular box, that was the mercy seat. That represents for us the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What did it be? What was it used for in the Old Testament? It was, 
<coughs> number one, it was the place where the blood was placed to atone for people's sins. Right there. But it was also the place that the glory rested. And it was also the place where God said, there, I will communicate with you. All of that is fulfilled with Jesus on the cross. He not only was giving his own blood, but he was the picture of the mercy seat. It was at the cross where Jesus took the sins of the world and he became a sacrifice for us. The mercy seat is a specific, careful, beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Number four, to take that just a little deeper, there were items inside the ark. Do you remember this? When I read from Hebrews 9, it listed three things that were inside the golden overlaid box. You might say, oh, okay, three things. No, you have to examine them one by one because each of them, represents one dimension of man's sinfulness. So the items inside the box represented man's sinfulness. Now let me connect the dots and I'll tell you what they are. Do you understand the significance of this? There are items inside the box where the golden lid covered it and blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to what? To cover the sinfulness that's represented inside the ark. Isn't that cool? Forgive me for getting excited. That is just so cool. Now let's look at what the three items were. Number one, that's a, just a picture showing you someone's rendition of it. All right. Number one, the first item was a golden pot of manna. Everybody remembers the manna? The manna was the food that God provided for the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. Every day, he provided this food, manna. It's on the ground. They had to go and pick it up, eat it. It, it was full of nutrition, fed their families. By the way, who remembers what manna, the very Hebrew word manna, actually means? What is it? <laughs> it meant like, what? what is this? So it didn't look like a hamburger. All right. It was this weird substance. But after all is said and done, God told Moses, get some of that manna, put it in a golden jar, put it inside the ark. Why? Because God's people continually complained about the manna. They hated it. They got tired of it. They said, don't we get a variety? Yeah, can't we have something different today? Every day, same menu, manna. Every day, manna. They were very ungrateful. And they were actually rebelling, complaining, and murmuring always about the manna. So what did manna represent? It represents in the golden jar inside the Ark of the Covenant, it represented man's rejection of God's provision. Second thing inside. This one's really cool. Hopefully some of you remember this story because I don't have time to digress. Moses, I'm sorry, Aaron's rod, his staff that had budded. 
Let me remind you of the story. There was conflict and division among the leaders and the priests of the children of Israel. And Aaron was the high priest. But all these other guys said, I think I ought to be the high priest. And this guy said, no, 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 I think I ought to be the high priest. And so they're having this big fight about who ought to be in charge, right? It's funny, people still have the same fight today, right? So they were fighting about this, and instead of God just saying, shut up, he's the one, he wanted to demonstrate it to them. So he told them, have one one staff from each, representing each tribe and have the priest of that tribe carve their name into the staff. So there were 12 of them, and one of them was for Aaron, the high priest. So they took them all, and they were to put them in front of the holy place. All right, so it took all the 12 sticks, put them in front of the holy place. Now you do remember these are dead sticks, right? You know what a walking cane is, right? It's just like a walking cane. It's been dead for a long time. No life in that, right? So they put all those walking canes, all those staffs there in front of the presence of the Lord. And overnight, something happened. God put life into Aaron's staff. He, you know, he's the resurrection and the life. He put life into Aaron's staff and it grew longer and it sprouted leaves and it produced fruit. It was an almond branch. So it produced these beautiful almond blossoms and even bore fruit. Now that would have taken a long time, much less the fact it was miraculous that a dead stick would all of a sudden come to life. And so what was this a sign of? God's favor was on Aaron. God was saying, I've picked him. And by the way, there's all kinds of interesting and amazing typology and shadows that are included in the use of the almond and the almond, but I don't have time for all that today, all right? But the point of the matter is, it was Aaron's rod that budded. And what was this symbolic of? Why would God tell them to put Aaron's budded rod inside of that box? Because it represented man's rejection of authority. Man's rebellion against God's delegated authority. Man always has been rebellious against God's authority. Today we see it, plenty of examples. Instead of recognizing and honoring those that God has placed in certain roles, we want to rebel. We want to resist. This is a picture of Aaron's rod who was chosen by God, and it's inside the ark. One more item in there. The two broke, the broken tablets of the covenant that God made with God's people. The Ten Commandments. You remember the story, right? Why were those tablets broken? Because of the stubbornness and the rebellion and the disobedience of God's people. God said, that's another item we need to have in the box. Why? Because it represented people's rejection of God's law. The rejection of God's word. Now let me wrap this up. Three items are in the box. Why would God have those items in the box? Because all three of them represented man's sinfulness. Some dimension of man's disobedience and man's rebellion and man's sinfulness. 
But most importantly, he put them in there so that they could be covered by the mercy seat of God. So that that's where the blood would be placed so that they could be forgiven and released from their sinfulness. Jesus comes for you and for me to fulfill the Ark of the Covenant. And in his life, in his death, he does what? He provides forgiveness for you and for me and for all of mankind. And he provides forgiveness for our rejection of his provisions. He provides forgiveness for our rebellion against divine authority. And he also provides for us forgiveness and love because we all have broken the Ten Commandments. And we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? And all of it is covered by the mercy seat. And because of it, we can walk and apply Hebrews 4.16 that says to us that we can boldly come before the throne of grace before his throne, into his presence, to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but my faith in Jesus is amplified by looking at the Ark of the Covenant and making those connections. What an amazing God we serve. Would you stand to your feet, please? Hallelujah. I pray that this picture today, this visual aid God provides us in the Old Testament will serve to encourage you and build your faith in Jesus. I want to pray for you today. Would you close your eyes, bow your heads? Maybe, maybe your prayer today simply has to do with thanking God for the revelation of His Son in Scripture. Maybe there's some of you that are here today that are not in right relationship with God. I'm going to ask that our prayer teams come forward so that they're available to pray for you. Do you have a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus? Maybe you've never truly seen God's mercy and love that has been provided for you. You can have life today, new life that comes through Jesus Christ. You simply must repent, have a change of heart, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Say, I'm going to believe and follow Jesus the rest of my days. If you're here today and you want to make that decision, just a second, I'm going to ask that you would slip out of your seat, walk to the front, have one of these prayer teams pray with you, and say, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And there may be someone here today that has known Christ, but you're far from Him right now. You've been running. You've been doing your own thing. Maybe today you need to come back home. Come back to Jesus. Or you may have some other need in your life and you simply need prayer of agreement, whether it be healing or restoration for your family or a job or whatever it may be. I want you to feel free that Utilize the prayer teams that are available here for you today. I'm going to pray for you, bless you with that prayer, and then Pastor Todd is going to come, and he's going to declare a blessing over you, and that will be your dismissal. Father, I thank you so much 
for the vivid portrayal of your wisdom, your plan for man, your plan for the world that was foreshadowed through the Ark of the Covenant. We're amazed. And Father, let today our gratefulness and our appreciation for Jesus grow evermore. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would draw those who need to make a decision today. Draw them to that point of courage. That they will choose Christ today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Pastor Todd. And I do speak a blessing over you today, over you individually, over your home, over your life. I pray, God, that you would touch your church and touch your people, Lord, that you would continue just bless them in everything they do, Lord. I thank you that you alone are that fulfillment of the mercy seat, God, and I pray that they would feel that blessing over their home and their life today. We give you glory for it, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.